Are you a soldier under God's command? Are you a, a soldier under God's command? Well, I have to tell you, I've got my striper t-shirt on tonight, okay? And I've been a soldier under command since 1984, since they released that album. But are you a soldier in the Lord's army? You'd say, what do you mean a soldier? You might ask. That sounds a little militant, doesn't it? That sounds fundamentalist. That the fact of the matter is, whether you like it or not, we're in a battle, we're in a war. We talked about that last week. The name of the Bible study last week was Welcome to the War. We're in a war. You cannot read the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, without coming away with this important fact. We're in a war. We're in a battle. Now, there are a couple things that we need to understand about the battle that we are in. The first is this, that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's his battle. And we know by reading the word that if, you're, if you are on God's side, if you are in the Lord, then you're on the winning side. Amen? Because guess what? We read to the end of the book, and we're on the winning side if we're in Christ. The second thing to know about this battle that we're in is that it's a spiritual battle. There have been... Religions, there have been religious groups down through the course of history that have, and even up to this present day, that have fought a physical battle. They have fought their effort, they have tried to advance their effort in the physical, and they have fought a physical battle. They have taken up arms to further the religious cause that they're in. One of the fastest growing religions in the world, well, I, I don't know if that's totally true, but that's what they say. Islam has spread by the physical battle, by the sword. And Jesus said very clearly that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And we're not called to live and die by a physical battle per se. We're in a battle, but the most important thing to realize about it is that it's a spiritual battle. So the question becomes, looking at this battle that we're in, how are we going to be prepared? Day by day, moment by moment, how are we going to be prepared? How are we going to live prepared for this spiritual battle that we're in? How will we be ready to face the enemy that comes against us? The answers to these questions are found right here in Ephesians 6, right here in our passage. The Apostle Paul answers these important questions. First, if you're taking notes tonight, I'll give you the, my points in advance. First, we will be ready by knowing who the enemy is. Number two, we'll be ready by taking a stand. And number three, we'll be ready by taking up the armor of God. Amen. So let's take a look at this tonight. Ready for the war. The first thing we need to do is we need to know who the enemy is. Let's pick it up. Verse 11 of Ephesians 6. It says this. Well, let's just pick it up from verse 10 and just read it right in context from last week's passage. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In order to be prepared for this battle, this war that we're in, 
we're instructed to here to take up the whole armor of God. But before that, we are told to be strong in the Lord. So we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We talked about that last week. We talked about being strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord. And we talked about the need to be in the Lord and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to allow the Holy Spirit to come upon us in power. Remember, we talked about that relationship that the Holy Spirit has, has with us. He's in us at salvation and he comes upon the believer in power to give us the power to be his witnesses and to live this life. Now, Paul is now telling us uh, to take up the whole armor of God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we, we need to take up the whole armor of God. Now, the first thing we need to do before we take up the armor is we need to know who the enemy is. We need to know who it is that we're up against. And this is one of the biggest problems today with believers. They're not ready for the war because they don't know who the enemy is. They don't know who the enemy is that they're facing. Look at it, verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God, comma, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil translates as this. That he lies in wait for us, those wiles of the devil. It means this, a cunning, deceit, a craft of trickery. And it is the wiles of the devil that he uses to come against us, to deceive us, to lie to us, to, to trick us, to get us to fall, to get us to be involved in false worship, to get us to turn our backs on the one true living God, to get us so blinded in darkness and confusion and all kinds of things in our lives so that we can't even see which way to go. And so the enemy of our souls is the devil. Here Paul announces to us here that it's the devil and we need to be ready for the wiles of the devil. The devil is none other than the serpent, the serpent of old, the one that we find in the Garden of Eden. But before he was in the garden, he was that, that uh, angel that was perfect in his, uh, in his creation. God made him in, in, in such a beautiful one, but he lifted up his heart against God. He lifted up his heart in pride against the Lord. And we find that passage in Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14, and I'll have it up on the screen for you. It says this, this is what Satan said, or God said to him, for you said in your heart, and this is what Satan said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. These, this is actually, this is a passage that's famously called the five I wills of Satan's pride. The five I wills of Satan's pride and thus his fall. That he had an eye on the throne. He had an eye on the throne of God to steal from God's glory, to be worshipped as God. He said, I want to be like the most high. And so... What is Satan's strategy to, to trick men into worshiping him? This is the fundamental thing that he's after. If you look at this passage, what is it that Satan wants? What is it that he wants? He wants the throne of heaven. He wants to be worshiped as God. He wants to be like the Most High. And so what he does is he uses his 
uh, limited power. He uses the, 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 the beauty that, that he was created in, in, in a way for evil. And he does it to do this, to lure humans into falsely worshiping him and stealing their attention and having them not worship the one true living God. And this is what he's all about. So he uses deceit to set up counterfeit worship. Counterfeit worship. And this is what he's been doing from the beginning. Counterfeit worship or false worship. And if you pick up the Bible and you begin to read and you get through the first 11 chapters, you will see Satan's strategies begin to take place. You see uh, in chapters 10 and 11, you see a man, this is after the flood of Noah, and you see a man that became a mighty one before the Lord. And it's in the English, it's kind of an unfortunate translation there because it almost lends us in the English to believe that he was before the Lord, that he was a good guy. But no, he was before the Lord in rebellion and his name was Nimrod. And he became really uh, the first world dictator. He became that one that, was, uh, that uh, built the cities of the Sumerian uh, valley there in the, in the Tigris and the Euphrates. And if you read that passage in... Uh, Genesis 10 and 11, he built those cities. And one of the cities that he built early on was Babylon, and he built a tower. Of the, he, he instructed to build a tower of Babel, and he built it. And, he, and, he, and, the, and the people of that area united together. And there was a time, and this is actually in an extra-biblical text. It's actually called the book of Jasher, but it's actually a text that's actually referenced in the Bible, uh, Joshua actually references this book in the 10th chapter of Joshua. And uh, when I was teaching through Joshua a couple years ago, I took the time to read Jasher just to find out what was, this book was that Joshua was referencing. And uh, we're not sure of all the accuracy of this particular book, but we know that Joshua kind of appeals to its authority uh, to validate the story of the day that the sun stood still uh, in, in that famous battle there in Joshua 10. But in that particular uh, uh, book, we find that Nimrod was killed uh, by a particular man. Actually, it's Esau. And uh, it's connected to the story of Esau selling his birthright. He came in, he thought his life was over because he had just killed Nimrod. And so, very interesting story there. You can take a look at it if you find that PDF on the, on the internet. But uh, it's available. But uh, anyways, after that, there, there arose a false religion in Babel, and it went like this. Uh, Semiramis, Nimrod's wife actually became uh, pregnant by another man after Nimrod's death. And what she did is she set up a false worship and she said that she had become impregnated by the rays of the sun because Nimrod had died and he actually had ascended to heaven and, be, and became the sun god. And so now by the rays of, of heaven, so this actually was kind of, it's, it's a false virgin birth, if you will, if, you know, a, a birth without uh, sex, if you will. And so uh, the, the son that was produced was, was a baby that became Tammuz. And what happened was after God uh, dispersed the languages in Genesis 11, uh, they all were under one language and God said, you know, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to do, I'm going to bring a blessing to the world by confusing the languages and everyone's going to have to spread out from, from Babel to the far uh, regions of the earth. 
And what happened was the, the false worship of the sun god Nimrod and his wife Semiramis, who becomes the queen of heaven, and Tammuz, the sun, it becomes known under different languages around the world. So in Egypt, it is Isis and Osiris and Horus. And so you see this little trio. It's a kind of a false trinity, if you will. And that, that uh, false religion goes out all the way uh, across the world in various uh, dialects and various names. Now, we just are uncovering a little bit of this information in our Revelation study on Wednesday night, where we just talked about the church of Ephesus. And we know from the book of Acts and the founding of the church there that one of the things that Paul did was that he cast a demon out of a, a girl who was prophesying and making these uh, fellas rich in Ephesus who was uh, uh, fortune telling, uh, if you will. But she was going behind Paul and just bothering and just being a real nuisance. And Paul turns around and casts the devil out of this girl and that it upset the town. And they stood in the, the square of Ephesus for three hours and they, they shouted what? Great is Diana of the Ephesians for three hours. Now, the, the, Paul references the, the meteor or the stone that they fell, the image of Diana that they worship. Now, this is believed to be a, a black stone that was that that they worshipped as a part of this worship of Diana in the, in the temple there in Ephesus. Well, some scholars have uncovered and some suspect that that image of Diana, this black stone, is the very black stone that ended up in the Kaaba in Mecca and is then thus connecting the Babylonian false religion to Islam of today. So you see this across many, many things. You see this issue. You see this. What is it? It's, it's a false religion that Satan has set up. It's become across the world in various tongues, in various interpretations, in various ways. And what is the goal? To get people lured away from worshiping the one true living God involved in false worship, which is ultimately worshiping the devil. And this is what he's all about. This is his whole M.O. And so we have to realize, and let's look back in our text here. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What wiles? The wiles that he wants to use to get you away from worshiping the one true living God. To trip you up, to bring you down, to get you sucked up into some other false worship of some kind. Verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we're reminded here in verse 12 that it, the battle is not physical, it's spiritual. When we're involved in, in battle, when we confront, whether it's false religion, whether it's some type of a battle in our lives, we need to be aware that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against uh, spiritual hosts. We're wrestling against principalities, against powers, uh, against rulers in darkness that would come against us. Sometimes we get involved in interpersonal disputes. There's, there's battles interpersonally. There's division. 
in families and marriages and relationships and all kinds of things. And, and uh, you can begin to think, yeah, maybe my battle is physical. Maybe I am battling my brother over here. Maybe I am battling my wife or my spouse. But the battle is spiritual. We're not wrestling against men and women. We're, we're battling against spiritual forces of evil. Sometimes we think it's a battle with a man or a woman or some people. Maybe we, maybe we are fighting someone. Maybe it's even a friend or a family member or a coworker. But we've got to remember there are spiritual forces involved. And this can help us, Christian. You can mature quickly by, by realizing this important point. Because we all have those times when we're battling someone, where there's a disagreement, there's something. And we can mature quickly by realizing, hey, and taking the high road on things. Realizing that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't want to get sidetracked in this battle, thinking that we're battling against flesh and blood. That, that's just a kind of a dead end. That's a sidetrack, if you will. We're to battle the spiritual entities that cause tension in our marriages, in our, pro, in our children, in our uh, struggles in relationships. We're to realize that there's spiritual issues. These entities are organized into principalities. Look at it. Verse 12 again, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What this tells us and what Paul is bringing out here is there's, there are principalities that are wicked, that are in league with the enemy, that are in league with Satan. And they're organized into principalities. They're given dominion over certain areas, and those areas can be geographic. And if you've, and if you've traveled much across this world, you know what I'm talking about. You can go into an area where, there, where it seems very light and free, and, 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 and things need, seem to be a little bit on the lighter side, and you can get in an airplane, and you can travel across this world, and you can end up in, a, in, in places that are absolutely under a darkness. And you get into some of these places in, 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 in Asia, and, and um, I think my, my, my dad has traveled all throughout Asia, and he said when he went to, to Japan, it, 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 to him it was a very, a very spiritually dark, dark place, and people caught in, in, in darkness there. What's the biblical backing for this type of idea? Well, we find it in Daniel Chapter 10, you'll remember the passage there where Daniel is actually praying. He's actually fasting and praying for 21 days. And, and Daniel fasted and prayed. And as he set his face to seek God, at the end of the time, an angel appeared to him saying, Your prayers have been heard. I'm here to help and, I'm, and, 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 and to give you understanding. I would have been here sooner, but I got hung up between here and heaven. The demonic entity overseeing the region of Persia intercepted me, and a battle followed that was so intense that Michael the archangel had to come to set me free and to win that battle. You can find that in, in Daniel chapter 10. And so what we learn from that passage in Daniel 10, that these spiritual forces, these principalities, these powers in darkness, in the spiritual hosts of wickedness, there's a hierarchy and they're set up and given uh, principalities and, and given geographic uh, areas. 
you say, well, why is some place, why does some place feel darker than another place? Well, maybe those, those principalities in those areas are just stronger spiritual forces. Maybe there's just a stronger uh, uh, presence there of whoever it is, whoever it happens to be that is, is in that principality of darkness. So we've got to know who our enemy is. This is a fundamental key. We've got to be on the lookout after it. That enemy goes out. The whole, if you want to track some of this down, you can in the research. Um, there's uh, the whole idea of Nimrod's wife, Semiramis. She becomes the queen of heaven. You can, tr- you can trace the queen of heaven down to the various goddesses uh, uh, of the ancient world and even right up into the present day. Um, and unfortunately, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to step on any toes, but the Catholics have actually got caught up in this, and they call Mary the Queen of Heaven, not even realizing that that's a page right out of absolute pagan, pagan Babylonian false religion. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I pastored in or- the city of Orlando for 13 years, actually 17, and um, they actually have a Catholic church called Mary Queen of the Universe. Uh, and don't realize that you can turn right over to the pages of the Old Testament and you can turn right to the passages of Ezekiel and other prophets that says the queen of the, u- the universe, the queen of heaven, is none other than Ashtaroth. It's none other than Semiramis. It's not un- none other than the, 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 the wicked goddess of false religion. And uh, it's unfortunate. I'm not, I'm not saying that to sweep Catholicism completely under the, uh, under, the, under the bus there. But these are things that we need to realize as we look out. The enemy wants to get people worshiping somebody else other than God, other than the one true living God. And so you have to ask yourself, when you look at things, is this, is this causing me to worship God? Or is it taking my focus off of God? And the answer to that question is very, very telling. Very telling. So we've got to know what we're up against. Now, that queen of heaven spirit shows up in the Old Testament in the time of Elijah in the, the spirit of Jezebel, whose, whose father was the king of the Phoenicians and who allowed this false worship to completely infiltrate Israel. This Jezebel spirit, it's a very sensuous spirit. And it got so bad in Israel that Elijah the prophet actually came to a point of depression and he said to God, I'm the only one left that still serves you, God. And God had to correct him and say, no, there's 7,000, which is still pretty bad, right? You know, when you consider the nation of Israel, there's 7,000 left in Israel that have not what? Have not bowed and kissed the Baal. What is that? That's Nimrod and Semiramis, Nimrod and Ashtaroth, That's what that is. The Baal was another word for it. Tammuz was the sun. So where does that play out into our common world, into our world of today? 
the Jezebel spirit is alive and well. The Jezebel spirit is alive and well to come and sneak into homes and families. It's a sensuous spirit. It's a spirit of division. It's a spirit of idolatry. It's a spirit of addiction. And it's ugly. And it's ugly. And it's in the world today. And so we've got to know our enemy. We've got to know so that we can take a stand against what? The devil. Amen? we got to know our enemy. Now he goes on in verse 13 and he says, take a stand. Take a stand. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We've got to stand. The enemy wants to take you out. <laughs> he wants to knock you off your feet. He doesn't want you standing for Christ. He wants you given up on standing for Christ. He wants you to give up on it. He wants to knock you down. He wants to, to, to have you feel like that it's futile to live for God in this world. That it's futile to stand up. It's futile to voice that, that word of the Lord in this day and age. And the Bible says here that we've got to take up the armor of God to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand, to stand there for. Now how do you, how do, you do this? How do you How do you stand? In taking up the armor, if you take up the armor, in taking up the armor, you're standing. Let me repeat that again. In taking up the armor, you're taking a stand. Because when you look at the pieces of the armor that we're going to get ready to look at, in taking up the armor, you're taking a stand for the Lord. Because it's all about faith. It's all about salvation. It's all about standing in peace. It's all about standing in truth. It's all, all about the word of God and prayer. And so by taking up the armor, you're taking a stand. So let's take a look at this third point tonight. Take up the armor. Let's pick it up. Verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. If we're going to be prepared for the battle, then we need to take up every piece of God's armor. Every piece of this armor is extremely important for the Christian. Now, Paul uses the analogy of armor. Where does he get this analogy? Well, there's a couple of ideas here that I want to throw out. One is the analogy of the armor of a Roman soldier. And you can very easily see the analogy fits there. And he's writing this epistle from a Roman prison, more than likely having uh, chained to uh, a Roman soldier. And so the imagery would be very vivid in his mind. There's also a second aspect of the analogy. And that is, has been suggested that the analogy is of the armor of God himself that is found 
uh, at least partially depicted in Isaiah 59, verse 17 and following. And you see a depiction of actually the armor of God. Now, we don't see all, all of it, and there are pieces of that armor that are not mentioned here, such as the cloak of zeal and other things. But there's a, there's a, a similarity to what's being said there in Isaiah 59. Nonetheless, it's the armor of God. It's the armor of a warrior, the armor of God. So let's take a look at this, each piece, um, briefly tonight. The first one, he says, is, uh, Stand therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, the belt of truth. The first thing Paul tells us to do is to gird our waist with truth. Before a Roman soldier put on his armor, he, he put a belt around his waist. And this held his garments together and served as a place on which to hang his armor. The belt of truth refers to the truth of the believer's integrity and faithfulness and to the objective truth of the word of God. As a soldier's belt or sash gave ease and freedom of movement, so truth gives freedom to move and to live for the Lord. The belt of truth. This is so important that we take up the belt of truth. There are those today that want to uh, deny truth. They want to come against truth in every way. They want to deny the existence of truth. They say there are no absolute truths. And the question when someone says, if anyone asks, ever tells you there's no absolute truth, say, is that, is that absolutely true? It's a self-defeating proposition. Amen? There is absolute truth. There, there, there is truth. Now, people, why will people today not embrace the truth? I believe the reason is found in Romans chapter 1. Uh, when Paul basically makes an argument about people not having a reason, not having an excuse to not, to not honor and, and acknowledge the existence of God. And he says this one thing that is very important to grasp hold of. He says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The only reason why someone wants to suppress the truth is because they want to remain in their unrighteousness. It's the only reason. And I've seen many debates with the, with the atheists and all the rest of it. They don't want there to be a God. They don't want there to be truth because they don't want anyone telling them how to live. And this is the reason they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But the truth is something that Jesus says, sets us free. Amen? The truth is something that sets us free. If we know the truth, we'll be set free. And, and he is the truth, right? He is the truth. So as we take up the armor, we take a stand for the Lord because he is the truth. Amen? The next thing is the breastplate of righteousness. Look at it uh, there at the end of verse 14. He says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The next piece of arm, the armor of God is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, the breastplate was a large uh, leather, bronze, or chainmail piece that protected the body from the neck to the thighs. And this piece protects the vital organs of the soldier. No soldier would go into battle without his breastplate. Righteousness provides a significant defense. It, give, it gives evidence that we have been made right with God. Amen. If you have the righteousness of God, you put that on, that breastplate of righteousness on. It's the Lord's righteousness that you put on. And it's a, it's a protection. It gives evidence that we've been made right with God. 
And we've been given righteousness by the Lord through the blood of Christ. And this is an important area, an important piece of the armor. Because the enemy brings attacks against it. The, the enemy will, one of the ways that the enemy works is to get people um, focused on the acts of unrighteousness that they, they, they formerly committed. And if you don't have that breastplate of righteousness, realizing, hey, I'm in the righteousness of Christ, I'm in the righteousness of Christ, he can get you to feel like there's no use in you trying to live for the Lord because you are just terrible. You remember what you did. And you have to, you have to stand up in the, in the breastplate of righteousness and say, no, I've got the breastplate of righteousness. My sins have been forgiven. I have the righteousness of Christ. Amen? My sins are, 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 are forgiven. I believe it was the singer Carmen, right? Who came, he came up with this little slogan. He says, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Amen? And, and he will try to remind you of your past. And he will try to remind you of your false, uh, the, 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 your, your, your failings. But we've got to have the, all the more the reason to have the breastplate of righteousness firmly in place. Amen? The next one is the gospel, the shoes of the gospel of peace. He says, verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel brings peace to your life. And you put, those, you put those on, you put that peace on as shoes. What is the peace of God? The peace of God means this, that before you came to Christ and were forgiven, that, you, that there was actually enmity between you and God. There was a division between you and God. And what God, through Jesus, who is our peace, he actually became that peace offering. And we partake of him. When we partake of him, then we are partaking of that peace offering and celebrating that very fact that we have peace with God. Put on those shoes of the gospel of peace, realizing that you've been brought near to God, that there is no wall of separation between you and the Lord. You have been made right with God. You have peace with God. And this is the best thing in all the world. The gospel shoes of peace. Next is the shield of faith. Verse 16, he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith is so important because the enemy will come with his various darts, the darts that will come in to try to bring doubt, bring that deception that we talked about earlier, or maybe it's just flat out temptation to, 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 to bring you away from the your place in God. And we've got to take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Now, we, we, there's a little mix-up in the average American understanding of what it means to have faith in God. And there's kind of an idea that faith in God is just, you know, we just have faith in God. We don't understand it all, but we just have faith in God. No, no, no. That's not the faith that, God, that the, the New Testament's talking about. The faith that the New Testament is talking about is the word pistis. It means to put your trust in God. That there's some reason and there's some evidence and there's some things that are solid that you can, that you can 
apprehend and the reality that God is, that he came into this world, that he died on a cross, that he was buried for three days and that he rose again on the third day. Those realities, I put my faith in the fact that those things are true and in God and I take up that type of shield of faith. So it's not just kind of, people actually today have, I've actually seen this by intelligent, like Harvard educated pundits on news programs actually take the position it comes across like well if people are just sincere in their faith there's this idea of the sincerity of faith that's not the that's not the idea of the new testament it's not just oh that we're sincere in our faith no we have faith in some actual things that took place in a god that actually is and we put our trust in that and that's what it means to take up the, the shield of faith and we take it up so that we can be ready for those fiery darts that might come against us. The helmet of salvation, moving quickly. The helmet of salvation, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Well, we'll end right there tonight on these last two points. The helmet of salvation. In the Old Testament, in the... In the, in the um, book of Exodus, Moses was given instruction for, to make garments for the high priest, this person that would be the high priest. As it turns out, it was his brother. <laughs> his brother Aaron became the high priest of Israel, right? And Aaron would have to put on these garments. One of the things was a hat. It was like a turban. It's Middle Eastern, right? So it was a hat. And on this turban that was made of linen, there was to be this gold plate on the front of it. And it said, holiness to the Lord. Holiness to Yahweh. Engraved in this gold plate on this hat that the high priest wore. And so, the holiness of God that provides our salvation in God went where? On his head. On his head. And this needs to be on our head and on our mind. What is it that's on your mind, Christian? Have you put on the helmet of salvation? Have you put on the helmet of salvation, knowing whom you have believed in, knowing that you've been set free, knowing that he's provided the, the holiness to Yahweh that you need, putting that upon your head, the helmet of salvation? So important that you go into battle with the helmet of salvation. And lastly, the sword of the Spirit. Now I realize I'm, I'm going through these rather quickly and you could probably spend an extended period of time on each one of these and you can do that. But the last one tonight is the sword of the Spirit. The last piece of the armor. It says there in verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, and it actually tells us what that is, which is the Word of God. Amen. And so this reference refers to, it was actually, there were two kinds of swords in, um, in battle in those days. There was the long sword, and then there was the short sword. The long sword was for those bigger kind of, you know, you're, you're out there swinging this big sword, right? And then you would actually have a short sword, which was actually more for close-range fighting. It was kind of an exacting sword. It was when you were close enough to 
deliver that kind of a blow. And so you needed this short sword. Um, the Roman army was actually called the short swords because they actually were um, the, the innovators of this short sword. It was uh, one of Rome's greatest military innovations, the short sword. So they actually became known as the short swords. Uh, and this provided many wins in many, in, in many, many battles. Now, the Greek word here for sword refers not to the big battle sword. If you look at this word for sword here in this, in this verse, verse 17, it's, it's not the big battle sword, but the small short sword, the small dagger for use in hand-to-hand combat. There are two, two words in the New Testament that are used for the word, the word of God. One is logos. And that is the word of God, and that speaks firstly of Christ. He is the Logos and the word of God. And then you have this other word that in the Greek is rhema. And as you study, as you go through the word, one of the, one of the principles is that as we hide the word in our heart and as we end up in that battle, we have that short, sport, short, short sword because the Holy Spirit will bring that exacting word that we need. Remember when Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to give you the word that you need when you stand before kings and when you stand before these people. I'm going to give you that ram. I'm going to give you that short sword, that word that you need. And so we go through the word. We study it. We re- read it day by day. We, we sit in the Bible studies. We go through. And God is going to bring that short sword of the spirit in the exact moment that you need. And, and, and be ready for that. Carry the word. Be in the word. But be ready for that quickening of the Holy Spirit because he wants to bring that rhema word to you the word of the Lord at the right time for the exact thing that you need and and this is one of my my wife's favorite points that she when she teaches uh, in the women's Bible studies and things she talks about the word being there and coming to our rescue when we need it and being there and, and and I believe that this is the idea of that short sword that God will bring that to you. Now, how, do we, how are we ready for the battle? We're ready for the battle when we take up the armor. And in taking up the armor, we take a stand for Christ. And in taking a stand, knowing who the enemy is, being ready for his deceit and his trickery and his false worship. Amen? And so be ready for the war. Take up the armor of God.